Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. The podcast is also sponsored by True Bill. Five dollars here, ten bucks there. It adds up. Monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal until you forget you've got them. Get your subscriptions under control with True Bill. Go right now, truebill.com slash gold. It can save you hundreds of dollars a year. Well, last night, the House of Representatives finally passed the Build Back Better bill, BBBB. However, it still seems unlikely that the bill will become law, at least in its current form, because the bill still needs to be passed by the United States Senate. And in order to do that, you need unanimous support from 50 senators, Democrat senators, two of which are on the fence because they at least have some sense of sanity and are pushing back the most vocal Joe Manchin, who has already said emphatically that there are parts of this bill to which he takes issue and he cannot support. So we'll see if he remains true to his word. But at a minimum, I think the Senate may ratify its own version of the BBB bill, except it will be a slimmed down bill. But there are so many ridiculous aspects of this bill other than the name. First of all, build back better. What exactly are we building back better with this bill because the infrastructure bill, which is supposed to be about building, that one already passed. So what exactly are we rebuilding with this bill? Well, apparently, I guess it's the economy, right? We're gonna build the economy back even better than before, but how are we building it back better? By making government bigger? What's better about that? By making a bigger government, we're not gonna make the country better. I mean, I guess if you're a socialist and you think that socialism is better than capitalism, then we're building back better. But if you don't believe that, if you believe in free market capitalism, then this is not building anything back and it's certainly not doing it better. What we want to do is screw up the economy even more than we screwed it up before. So maybe that should be the name of the bill. Screw up the economy bigger bill. But again, nobody votes for that, right? There's never any truth in labeling when it comes to legislation. I've talked about this in the past, like the Patriot Act, which by the way, I'm going to talk about a little bit later in this podcast, but the Patriot Act, had it been labeled properly, it never would have been ratified because it was actually the most unpatriotic piece of legislation that we ever passed. The only way you can get Congress to ratify such an unpatriotic piece of legislation was to call it the Patriot Act, right? Because in general, if you want to know the effect of a piece of legislation, look at the name and then think of what the opposite of that name would be. Because generally, whenever the government has a program, what the program ends up achieving is the opposite of what was intended to be achieved. And of course, that is the case with the Build Back Better plan, to the extent that it's actually proved we are going to build back worse. In fact, we're not even going to build back. We're going to dismantle some of the freedoms that we have and replace it with socialism. But another ridiculous aspect of this Build Back Better is the idea that has been rebranded as a way to fight inflation. And I mentioned that in my last podcast, but it's such a ridiculous position for the Democrats to take that I want to mention it again. I mean, you can't take a bill that was specifically designed as a Keynesian fiscal stimulus. Build Back Better is about stimulating the economy through government spending, right? The Keynesians believe that if the economy is weak, the government can help by increasing aggregate demand by spending money it doesn't have and by running deficits. That's your classic Keynesian fiscal stimulus and that pretty much describes the Build Back Better bill. You can't then take that same bill and say, no, 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 this is about fighting inflation because 
if you're going to fight inflation using a Keynesian approach, which is what they're doing, you need the opposite of stimulus. You need a contractionary fiscal policy. You need to cut government spending to fight inflation, not increase government spending. You can't claim that a bill designed to stimulate the economy can actually fight inflation. Now, the way the Democrats are twisting this pretzel is by trying to say, well, all this extra government spending is going to result in increased production. And that increased production is going to reduce inflation when we already know that the cause of the price increases is too much demand that is being created by increased government spending. So if we increase government spending even more, we're simply going to take an excess demand problem and make it even bigger. We are not going to deal with the supply shortages by making more government. If anything, we're going to exacerbate those shortages because government spending will reduce supply by depleting the free market of resources that otherwise would have been available to increase supply because government is never more efficient than the private sector. If you want more stuff, you leave the resources in the private sector and they'll make more stuff. If you want less stuff, then divert those resources to the government. And that is exactly what the Build Back Better bill does. And even the Congressional Budget Office has scored this thing and they said that it is not revenue neutral, it is not paid for because one of the ways the Democrats claim that this bill is not inflationary is they say, well, it's not going to expand the deficits and so it's not going to lead to additional money printing, which of course is an admission that the expanded deficits and the money printing that we already have are causing inflation because if you're gonna say this bill doesn't cause inflation, because it doesn't result in bigger deficits, that's an admission that bigger deficits cause inflation when the Fed monetizes them, which is exactly what's going on, yet nobody wants to acknowledge the government or the Fed's culpability in the inflation problem that we're now complaining about, and that now the Democrats are trying to hold this bill, this inflationary bill, out as a cure for inflation, despite the fact that it will make it worse. But my point is that even the Congressional Budget Office admits that this bill, if enacted as proposed, will increase the deficit by $450 billion over the next 10 years. But even the CBO is dramatically underestimating the true cost of this bill because they are not even close to getting the number right because they are not really looking at the revenue and the expenditures. I mean, first on the revenue side, the big increase in revenue comes from the IRS supposedly cracking down on the millionaires and the billionaires with more frequent audits to get all this tax money that is not being collected, which is complete nonsense. It's like they always want to say, hey, we're going to solve the deficit by going after waste, fraud, and abuse, right? Everybody is against waste, fraud, and abuse. The problem is you never actually find the waste, fraud, and abuse because pretty much all of it is waste, fraud, and abuse. They just don't want to admit that. But to say there's this huge untapped pot of tax money that the rich are just not paying because they're cheating is just not true. And even if there is some money that the rich are not paying that they're legally required to pay, the odds that these audits are actually going to get it are pretty slim. I mean, maybe they'll get some of it, but they won't even come close to what they are assuming. And the main reason is that by and large, the rich are not cheating on their taxes. I mean, they're doing everything they can to avoid taxes, don't get me wrong, but that's not illegal. There are all sorts of legal ways for rich people to avoid income taxes. And so they do it. That doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people cheating on their taxes. There are, right? There's an old saying that the income tax created more cheaters than golf. And there's a reason for that, right? A lot of people do cheat on their taxes. But I think most of the tax cheats, if you want to call them that, are average Americans. They're not the super rich. I mean, why would a billionaire take a chance on cheating? Why? There's no reason. If you could avoid the taxes legally, why cheat? It's the guy that works for wages, He doesn't have any legal way to reduce his taxes. He's stuck 
The only way he can reduce his taxes is to cheat. And so that's what they do. I mean, they can't afford high-priced accountants and lawyers, so they just take the only avenue at their disposal. They cheat, and they hope they get away with it. And by and large, they do get away with it. A lot of the people who are cheating are self-employed people who get paid a lot of cash, right? They just put the cash in their pockets. They don't report it. Or they're running small businesses, and they just make up their deductions. They inflate their deductions. In fact, a lot of people inflate their charitable deductions all the time. Right? I mean, they just claim deductions. I remember Bill Clinton right, made the news because he had a big deduction for used underwear and socks that he gave to charity. I mean, a lot of people give crap to charity and they claim it's worth a lot of money. Nobody audits, nobody checks this stuff. And that's one of the reasons that people do it. But look, I don't blame a lot of families who are struggling to get by. They cheat on their taxes because that's pretty much the only way they can pay the bills, pay their rent, put food on the table is if they cut corners on their taxes. So this is what's going on. And so again, I think that most of the efforts to bleed the taxpayer out of more money are gonna be aimed at the middle class and the working poor. But of course, they're never gonna admit that, right? That's not how you get more IRS agents by claiming we're gonna sick them on the average a voter. No, 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 they're gonna claim they're gonna make the billionaires pay. But I'm gonna talk about this too a little later in the podcast, another angle that they're using that was already passed as part of the infrastructure bill that proves exactly what I'm saying, that the government is going after the average guy. But I'm going to get to that later. I just want to finish up what I'm talking about with Build Back Better. But my point here is that the government isn't going to come close to collecting the revenue that they claim, especially when you've got the reintroduction of the SALT deductions. I think they moved the caps from 10,000 to 80,000. So that's going to restore pretty much the full deductibility of state and local taxes for the vast majority of people who lost it. That is very expensive. There's a lot of tax cuts in the Build Back Better plan. And so it's possible that the tax cuts may end up exceeding the tax hikes. And so not only won't the tax hikes pay for the spending, they won't even pay for the other tax cuts. So all the spending is going to be financed by deficit. But as bad as the assumptions are when it comes to revenue, when it comes to cost, what these programs are going to cost, the assumptions are even further off. And this is historically proven Every time you go back and you look at a government program, look at, let's say, Medicare, and look at what the government claimed it was going to cost, and then look at what it actually cost. I mean, I don't know what it was, 20 times, 50 times more expensive over the first 20 or 30 years, whatever, than the government had initially budgeted. Everything costs much more than what they claim because they never take into account the effect that the programs have on the people who end up qualifying for the benefits or needing the benefits. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, and it's trusted by over 435 million users. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. It's got award-winning antivirus software that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. It can protect you from data breaching. It enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed. You get firewall protection to keep your personal information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computer and steal your data. It offers ransomware protection, securing your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. It can even speed up your PC by optimizing the background activity of your applications. And it's got a smart scan that finds and removes viruses and resolves the most common privacy and performance issues through an optimization scan. I've been using Avast myself for years to keep my data private and secure. 
In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks each and every month with Avast One. Now you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. One example that I want to use is probably the one thing that's least likely to survive the Senate, and that is the paid leave. But I just wanted to focus in on this particular assumption to illustrate the absurdity behind these government assumptions and how they bear no relationship to any actual facts. So in this bill, there is a provision where every American worker, and that includes the self-employed, so you don't even have to have a job. You could just, you know, be an Uber driver, right? You're self-employed or just have your own business where you're your own boss. But Anybody self-employed or has a job, a W-2 income, everybody is entitled to four weeks of family or medical leave every year, right? Not once, but every single year, you get a new four weeks that you are entitled to if you want them of paid leave, right? Now, first of all, a lot of people are like, well, this is about time, right? You have four weeks mandatory leave in a lot of European countries, which is true, but the way the mandates work in these other countries is employers are required to give their workers three weeks, four week, five week vacation, depending on the country. And a lot of times it's also a function of how long you've been on the job. So you get more leave if you've you know been a longer term employee, but all of these benefits are paid for by the employer which of course means that they are paid for out of the productivity of the worker because whenever the government mandates that compensation be paid in a certain manner. And so what a lot of these European countries are saying is that if you hire somebody, you must compensate them with time off. You must give them, let's say, four weeks vacation as part of their employment package. Whether the worker wants it or not, that's what you have to provide. Now, an employer when they're forced to provide a worker with a benefit, that benefit is simply looked at as part of the overall compensation to that worker. And so you have to look at the worker's productivity and decide how much you can pay. And let's say a particular job is worth $50,000 a year, but the government says that if you hire this guy, you've got to give them benefits that are equal to 10000 a year, whether it's sick days, leave, whatever it is. But there's some required benefit. And I know that's going to cost me $10,000 to provide it. Well, then I'm going to pay the worker 40000 in cash. He's going to get the mandatory 10000 benefit. The worker gets $50,000. Now, if I wasn't required to provide those benefits, I could have just given the worker 50000 in cash right? Same thing to me. But the worker doesn't realize this. See, the worker, who is also a voter, thinks he's getting something for nothing. He thinks the reason he's got this four-week vacation is because the politicians forced the employer to provide it. He just doesn't realize that he gave up a bunch of income, or she, that maybe the worker would have got paid an extra $10,000, but for the mandatory vacation. But because the vacation was mandated, well, the pay is reduced. That's how it works. Now, personally, I don't like that. I think people who want a lot of vacation time should negotiate that as part of their employment package. People who don't really want the vacations, who'd rather get paid more money, they should be allowed to do that. But what the government says is you're not allowed to bargain away your vacation time. We want to force you to take these vacations, whether you want them or not. And I believe the most efficient economy is the freest economy where individuals can make those choices for themselves. I don't need the government telling me how much time off I want. If I want amount of time off, then I'll look for jobs that will give me that time off or I'll negotiate with my employer. Hey, pay me a little less because I want to take the summers off. And so just pay me less money. All of this can happen without the government, but the government always wants to claim credit for giving people something for nothing because that's how they get their votes. But the people who are saying, hey, it works in Europe, it can work in America, they don't understand the difference between these requirements where as part of a compensation package, they've required employers to include paid leave as a benefit. 
That is very different from the bill that just passed the House. What this bill does is says the government, meaning the taxpayer, is on the hook to pay for the four weeks of leave every year, not the employer. And this is in addition to any vacation that the worker already has built into their employment deal with their employer. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. This is extra. Now, if you look at the supposed cost of this program, over 10 years, the government is claiming it's going to cost about $200 billion over 10 years to provide this four-week family medical leave. That's about $20 billion a year. Now, when I looked at that, it seemed, you know, that's a tiny number. I mean, how can everybody get four weeks off basically at 90% of pay? Because that's what you get. It starts out at 90% of pay, but then as you earn more and more money, the percentage of your salary that gets made up is reduced. But for a lot of people, you'll get 90% of your income for four weeks. And I'm thinking, well, how can that only cost $20 billion a year? Because if you think about it, there's about 150 million workers in the United States. There's actually more than that. I think it may be closer to 160, but obviously some of them are high earners or they're not going to take off. But let's say there's 150 million people and they're earning about $40,000 a year each. If each one of those 150 million workers decided to take the four weeks off, my guess, and again, it's not exact, but I'm just trying to keep it simple. 90% of 40,000 is 36,000 a year. On a monthly basis, that's $3,000 a month. So $3,000 a month is what the government would have to pay each worker who took four weeks off for leave. Well, if you multiply that by 150 million, that's 450 billion per year, not 20 billion, 450 billion. That's more than 20 times what's been budgeted. Over 10 years, that's four and a half trillion dollars for this one program. Now, how would the government budget 200 billion for something that could cost four and a half trillion? And that's because the government assumes, based on their 20 billion, this is what they must be assuming, that only about 5% of the workforce in any given year will choose to take the four weeks off. Now, why would they make such an asinine assumption? I mean, don't people like to get four weeks off with pay? Who doesn't want an extra four weeks vacation? Now, people will say, Peter, this is not about four weeks vacation. This is about four weeks to take care of a sick family member or relative or to recover from some type of medical problem that you might have. So in other words, the government assumes that the only people who will actually apply for the benefit are the people who actually need it, right? They're really sick or they're really taking care of a sick family member. They assume that everybody else is gonna be completely honest and nobody is gonna try to exploit this program to take a free vacation. But why would they assume that? What kind of idiot is not going to take advantage of this? I mean, first of all, we know that everybody takes advantage of government programs. I mean, look at all the welfare fraud that's already out there. Food stamps. I mean, there's tons of fraud. People claiming benefits they're not entitled to. Look at what we just experienced with COVID. Look at all the people who voluntarily didn't try to get a job because they wanted to live on the unemployment benefits. Technically, they weren't supposed to do that, but they did it anyway. Look at all the companies that applied for PPP money. All the companies that didn't really need it, well, they qualified, they applied anyway. People are going to take advantage of this. Everybody wants four weeks off with pay. How do you get it? You just have to tell your employer that you need time off. I don't feel well. 
I'm sick. I'm depressed. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, you can make up whatever you want. You don't even need a doctor's note. Even if you do, so what? There'll be a whole cottage industry of doctors giving out notes. I mean, look what happens now. Take medical marijuana, for example. How many people got prescriptions for marijuana? How many people actually needed that marijuana? Nobody. But the doctors were writing prescriptions for anybody who wanted to claim they needed pot for some medicinal purpose. What about the emotional support animals? I mean, there was a whole cottage industry. They stopped doing this now, the airlines. But there were all these doctors online that would write you a prescription that would claim, yeah, you need a dog. You have an emotional problem. And so here's a doctor note that says that you need your dog on your flight. You don't think it would be easy to get notes that say that you're depressed, you're getting over anxiety, you've got a substance abuse problem, whatever. I mean, there's so many ailments that you can feign on an annual basis to get your four weeks off, except you don't even have to fake it because you can claim you're taking care of a family member. I'm taking care of my kid. My kid's depressed. He's been bullied in school. I mean, whatever, you can come up with all sorts of reasons why you need to be with your kid. I mean, a lot of people think about, oh, I just had a brand new baby, which obviously that will count. You have a baby and you need four weeks to bond with your baby. But there's all sorts of issues that kids have. You can always claim that your kid's got an issue, but it doesn't even have to be a family member. You're allowed to claim that you have to take care of a personal friend, a close personal friend who needs you. And everybody has friends who could get in trouble that are going through a tough time. They don't even have to be physically ill, but of course they could be. I mean, most people, when your parents get older, there's always something going wrong with them. I mean, if you've got 70 or 80 year old parents, chances are they got something. You can always claim, oh, I need time off to take care of my sick mom, my sick dad. I mean, you'll never run out of excuses. I mean, if people cheat on their income tax, you don't think they're gonna cheat on this? In fact, I think that people will feel like idiots if they don't cheat because everybody else is going to be taking time off. You're going to be feel like a fool if everyone is on vacation. But, you know, if you're the one guy that doesn't take off and your boss is going to say, hey, you know, everybody else has left because they're taking care of sick relatives. So that means you really have to work extra hard during these four weeks to make up for the fact that everybody else is taking care of their sick relatives. Well, all of a sudden, your relative is going to come down with something too. And now, you know what? I got a sick relative. I'm out of here. I'll see you in four weeks. In fact, What's going to happen is most of these Americans who have to take care of their sick relatives, they're going to end up having a sick relative over the summer. That's when they're going to suddenly come down with something in July or August when the weather is nice or their kids are home from school, right? No one's going to get sick in February, right? Because who wants to take their four weeks off in the middle of winter, right? So the whole country is basically going to shut down for the summer because there's going to be no one to work. In fact, not only is this going to cost a fortune if it actually got passed in the money that we would have to spend paying everybody's vacations, but what about all the lost productivity? What about all the businesses that have to shut down every summer because none of their workers are there? Everybody took the summer off with pay. Now, I mean, people think, oh, Peter, you're just making this up. Of course not. This is a brand new entitlement. Do you think people are not going to take what they are entitled to? Of course not. But government just assumes that everybody is honest, right? Nobody is going to take advantage of these programs when common sense would tell you that they will. But you don't even need common sense. You just have to look historically at past programs to see how much they've been abused. But you open up this type of cesspool where, hey, each American, every year, four weeks off, 90% of pay, all you have to do is claim you're taking care of somebody who needs your help. Obviously, this is going to cost a lot more. And it's not just this. You can look at all the different things, the paid for preschool, for example. Everything is going to cost so much more than what the government claims. Again, when it comes to paid preschool, right, preschools are going to jack up the tuitions once they know the government is paying for it. People are going to put their kids in preschool who might otherwise not have when it's free, right? You're more likely to do something that's free than to do something that costs money. And so demand for these preschools is going to go way up. The price is going to go way up. So the cost is going to go way up. And so it's going to cost the government a lot more than what they've budgeted when you base the cost on the level of usage prior to the introduction of the new subsidy. Once the new subsidy comes in, it's a whole new ballgame. But my main point, again, on talking about the mandatory family and medical leave 
is not that I think it's going to be included in the bill because it's probably going to get taken out. It's just to illustrate the absurdity of these assumptions on what things are going to cost. Because if the government could claim that this provision would only cost $20 billion a year, when it will clearly cost many, many times that, it just shows you that you can't take any of their estimates seriously. That whatever the government claims, the numbers are completely made up. All they're trying to do is make it look like it's not going to cost as much. In fact, one of the other ways that they claim that it's not going to cost as much is even though these are 10-year projections, a lot of the spending sunsets after five years. So the government is saying, hey, we're creating these new benefits and these new programs, but after five years, they're going to go away. And that way, they don't have to count how much they're going to cost over the whole 10 years because they're assuming that the programs go away after five. But of course, they're telling their constituents, oh, we'll never let these programs go away because before they expire, we'll renew them. So the whole thing is a lie. And in fact, history tells you that nothing is temporary, that once the government creates a program, it never goes away. It doesn't matter if they claim it's only around for five years, because once you get close to that five-year point where it's going to go away, well, then they pass a bill to extend it. And once you give people something, no politician wants to take it away. So initially, there is some objection, right? Before there's a new government program introduced, there are some people who are opposed to a new giveaway. But once that new giveaway is there and the people have it, even the people that were initially opposed to it won't vote to take it away. I mean, look at all these Republicans now. They all support Social Security. They all support Medicare. There were a lot of Republicans who were opposed to Social Security before anybody had it, right? Because there wasn't a big constituency of voters that were used to this benefit. So they weren't taking something away. They just weren't providing something new. And so initially, there was some resistance to this expansion of government. But once you give the voters something, and now they have it, and they think they're entitled to it, nobody wants to take that away, not even the people who originally opposed giving it to you in the first place. So if these benefits get passed, There's no way that they're going away after five years. So why do we allow Congress to pretend that's going to happen, even though we know that's not the case? It's like we allow them to lie, and then we all believe the lie because it's more palatable to believe it so we can pretend that the bill doesn't cost nearly as much as we all know it's going to cost. That is all part of the farce in government budgeting. You know, those small subscriptions can really add up. And sometimes we don't even notice the monthly deductions from our bank accounts, especially if we're no longer using the services that we subscribe to. That's where Truebill comes in. Truebill is a new application that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need and may have even forgotten you signed up for. On average, people are saving thousands of dollars a year by using Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one convenient place, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't, all from the same app. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped save them over $100 million. Like Becca L., who said, hands down, it's the best financial app I've ever discovered. In my first week, I opened up 187 in unused recurring subscriptions. I'm obsessed. I never want to manage finances again without Truebill. In fact, since I started using Truebill myself, every time there's an unusually large charge, I get a warning so I can check my accounts to make sure that I'm not being overcharged. So start canceling your unused subscriptions today at Truebill.com slash gold. Go right now to Truebill.com slash gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. But I want to circle back, though, and talk about one of the ways that the government plans on getting additional tax revenue. And that actually goes back to the infrastructure bill that was already passed and signed into law. There is a provision in there that the crypto industry is quite concerned about, and rightfully so. I'm more concerned about it from a civil rights issue, from a constitutional issue, because again, it is exploiting the gaping hole in the Constitution left by the Patriot Act, 
which I mentioned earlier in the podcast, which opened the door to the government spying on American citizens and collecting all sorts of information on Americans that it legally has no authority to do absent a court order, right? You need probable cause, you need a judge. But with the Patriot Act, now the government gets all sorts of information and all of our constitutional protections have gone out the window. But one provision in particular that is now applicable to all crypto transactions, I think is designed to generate a lot of additional tax revenue. Maybe this is where some of the tax revenue is supposed to come from. But inside the infrastructure bill, there is now a requirement for anybody who is a party to a crypto transaction, and that would include any cryptocurrency or any non-fungible token. If you're involved in this transaction and the value of the transaction is $10,000 or more, you are now required to file a report with the U.S. government within a number of days of that particular transaction. The type of information that you're gonna have to collect will be a full name, date of birth, their physical address, social security number, occupation, stuff like that. And you're gonna have to document that. You're gonna have to get copies of their ID, maybe a verified copy of their driver's license because they have to prove their identity. You have to make sure that they are who they say they are. And you've got to file this form with the IRS. It's a form 8300. And I think you have something like 15 days from the transaction to file this form. And there are huge penalties if you don't do it. I think it's $25,000 per incident, right? Every time you don't do it, because you could get involved in multiple transactions, every time you don't do it, there's a $25,000 fine. And you could go to jail up to five years in prison for each occurrence. So that's a pretty serious penalty for not routing out whoever you're dealing with. Now, this provision is already in there for cash. It was put in there, I think, in 1985. And it says that anybody who does more than a $10,000 transaction for cash has to report it. But the way the law is written, it really only applies to businesses, right? So if you're conducting a business and one of your customers wants to buy your goods or services and they want to pay in cash and it's $10,000 or more, then you've got to fill out one of these forms. It didn't apply to just a private citizen who in the ordinary course of his life gets 10,000 in cash. Like for example, you want to sell your used car and you sell it to a buddy and he pays you 12,000 in cash. You don't have to file the report, right? Now, if you ran a used car dealership and somebody came onto your used car lot and bought a used car and gave you 12,000 in cash, then you would be required to file this form, but not a normal guy just selling his own car. But the way this law applies to cryptocurrencies or digital assets, every party that engages in a transfer of crypto, if it exceeds this number, is going to have to file the report. And in some cases, even if it's less than 10,000, because the way these laws work, if you suspect somebody is structuring transactions to be under the 10,000, because, hey, there's a $10,000 reporting requirement. Somebody might say, hey, I'm not going to do a $10,000 transaction. I'm going to do an $8,000 transaction. Maybe I'll do two of those, and so I'll be under the limit. Well, if it looks like somebody is trying to avoid the limit by being under it, well, that's also money laundering. You got to report that too. And so if you don't report that, you could still be guilty on either side of this transaction. But this applies to everybody. Because according to the law, the qualifications for whether or not you would have to report it, one of them is whether what you are doing is activity in which you are seeking a gain, right? The ordinary course of your gain-seeking activity. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're running a business. Because anybody who is buying cryptocurrencies or NFTs is doing so in pursuit of a gain, right? If I'm buying a cryptocurrency, I'm buying an NFT, my intention is to make money. My intention is to sell that cryptocurrency at a profit. Or even if I don't sell it, if I use it to buy something, 
but I expect the cryptocurrency to appreciate in value between the time I acquire it and the time I use it, well, that's gain-seeking activity. So the way I read this law, any individual who receives more than $10,000 in cryptocurrency from any other individual needs to ask that individual all of these questions, fill out that form, and sign it, send it into the government under penalty of perjury, and risk uh, sanctions, fines, prosecutions. I mean, think about it this way. Let's say somebody creates an NFT and that NFT is sold to somebody who pays for it in Ether. And let's say the guy who creates the NFT sells it for 12,000 worth of Ether. The way I read the law, both parties, the person who sold the NFT and accepted Ether, he would have to fill out a form to report the 12,000 in ether that he received and get all the information on the buyer. But then the buyer who received the NFT in exchange for his ether, he would now have to file the same report on the guy who gave him the NFT because now he got a digital asset that was worth more than 12,000. So now both parties to the same transaction have to rat out each other and tell the IRS what just happened. And I think the main reason that the IRS wants this is because probably right now, there are people who are trading their appreciated cryptocurrencies for goods and services and not reporting it as a taxable gain. So what they wanna make sure is that anybody who receives cryptocurrency reports to the IRS that they got it and who gave it to them. So the IRS can then compare that information with the individual's tax return to make sure that they declared that gain and paid that tax. And maybe that's where they wanna get this information. But I don't like any of this. This is terrible from a constitutional, from an individual privacy perspective. And first of all, first it's $10,000, then it's $5,000, then it's $1,000. And by the way, inflation erodes it away substantially anyway. I mean, when the law initially came into effect for merchants who received cash, it was 1985 and it was $10,000. Well, $10,000 was a lot more money in 1985 than it is today. They don't index this stuff for inflation. So it's already applying to transactions that it would not have applied to back then because of inflation. So that's automatically going to happen. But my feeling is once they get the camel's nose under the tent, they're going to change it and they're going to say, you know, 10,000 isn't a big enough threshold. Let's make it 5,000. Let's make it 1,000, something like that. But this can also really complicate stuff for the crypto industry in general. I have no idea the other ramifications of these reporting requirements to all these transactions that are going on all over the internet in crypto. Of course, most of it is one crypto for another crypto, crypto for an NFT, but any of these transactions that exceed $10,000 of value, whoever received the crypto or the NFT is going to have to gather all this information on the counterparty, assuming they even know who the counterparty is. That's part of the problem. How do you get the information if you don't even know who you're dealing with? Which obviously you can't. You're going to have to get the information in order to make these transactions. But this is going to substantially complicate and increase the cost of transacting in crypto, which is only going to make the use case even worse than it already is. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, which just came out probably about an hour or so before I began recording this podcast. And I have not spoken about Rittenhouse at all, really, on this podcast. And I certainly haven't spoken about the trial. I kind of stayed out of the fray and I'm just going to talk about it now that we have a verdict and you know I never really thought it was that necessary to comment on this case because it was so obvious to me from the beginning that this was a clear-cut case of self-defense and I fully expected the jury to acquit Kyle Rittenhouse even before I saw some of the footage Rittenhouse's direct testimony and his cross-examination which is really the only thing I watched and to me it was pretty persuasive and I had seen all of the other video evidence of the encounter and so from my perspective it was clear that Rittenhouse lawfully discharged 
his weapon. And unfortunately, two people died, but it's not Rittenhouse's fault. It's the fault of the individuals who chose to attack an armed man. Why they did that, we have no idea, but they did it. But that doesn't mean Rittenhouse was wrong to fire his weapon at people who were attacking him. He has a right to defend himself. Now, the prosecutors in this case argued that Kyle Rittenhouse surrendered his right to self-defense, that the fact that he brought a rifle with him to this situation, that he lost his right of self-defense the minute he brought a rifle, which of course makes no sense whatsoever because if the purpose of bringing a rifle or a handgun with you is to defend yourself. If that's why you have it, how can you lose your right to defend yourself by asserting your right to defend yourself, which is exactly what Kyle Rittenhouse was doing. He had a gun for the sole purpose of defending himself. He did not bring that gun there to start shooting innocent people. It's not like he was one of these mass shooters who started firing into a crowd at people who are running away. He went into a dangerous situation to try to help. He was going to try to help protect people. He was going to try to help protect property. And so he also needed to protect himself. And so he brought a firearm with him that he was legally allowed to carry. In fact, one of the charges against him that was dropped. Of course, the rest of them, he was acquitted, found not guilty on all charges. But during the trial itself, they dropped the charge that he was carrying an illegal weapon because it turned out he was not. He was legally entitled to the weapon that he was carrying. And he was also entitled to use that weapon in self-defense, despite what the prosecutor said. And I'm watching the coverage on MSNBC just to see how outraged they are. And they're all basically criticizing Rittenhouse. It's all his fault. He never should have fired the weapon. There's no criticism at all for the people who attacked them. Somehow these guys are off scot-free. They had nothing to do with it. They're just innocent bystanders. They just happened to get shot by this kid. And they're saying it's all his fault. In fact, one of the guys I saw on MSNBC said, you know, if Rittenhouse had simply left his gun at home or left his gun in the truck, these two people who died would still be alive, right? Yeah, sure. They would probably still be alive. But what difference does that make? And also, what about Kyle Rittenhouse? Would Kyle Rittenhouse still be alive had he not had his gun? I don't know. Would those people who were threatening to kill Kyle Rittenhouse, apparently one of the people he shot earlier in the night had specifically threatened to kill Kyle Rittenhouse? So would Kyle Rittenhouse have been killed? We don't know. Would he have been beaten up? Would he have been severely injured? Maybe. But you know what? Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't have to wait around to find out. If somebody attacks you, or threatens to attack you, you have the right to defend yourself. You know, saying that he provoked the attacks by bringing a gun, actually the opposite should happen. Normally, a gun will defuse a situation. Generally, you hope that when you have a gun, people will think twice about attacking you because they don't want to get shot, right? If you're going to attack somebody and they're defenseless, they're not armed, you're more likely to attack them. If they have a gun and there's a chance that you may get shot, you're more likely not to attack. So by bringing the gun, you would think that he reduced the odds of being attacked. I mean, what idiot is going to say, oh, that guy has a gun. I better go attack him. That's not what people think. It's like, oh my God, that guy's got a gun. I better stay away. I don't know what these guys were thinking, but clearly they put themselves in a very bad situation where you are assaulting a man who can defend himself with a gun. Now, one of the people that he shot actually had a handgun and he was pointing it at Rittenhouse. Was he going to use it? I don't know. I mean, Rittenhouse doesn't have time to think about that. You see a gun pointing at you, you shoot, right? It's either you or the other guy and you're going to choose the other guy. Now, that guy didn't die. He got injured. The people who died didn't have guns, but that didn't mean they didn't have weapons. I mean, they had fists, right? I mean, they're big. One guy smashed Rittenhouse on the head with a skateboard. I mean, you can kill somebody with a skateboard. I mean, you can kill somebody with any hard object if you smash them hard enough on the head with it. So just because you don't have a gun doesn't mean you don't have a weapon. But the idea that Rittenhouse brought this on himself, 
that it's his fault. I mean, this is all the anti-gun people. They don't like the fact that somebody used a gun in self-defense, right? That's probably the main reason that the charges were even brought because it should be obvious from the evidence that Rittenhouse was not guilty. He did not show up that day looking to murder people. He clearly showed up hoping to save people and to save property. He is a good kid. That's obvious. I mean, any man or a woman would be proud to have this kid for a son, right? And the people he shot, not so. Not that I'm saying they deserve to be shot, but these were not exceptional individuals, right? These were people with criminal records and they were up to no good. They were there to loot, to riot, to destroy property. Kyle Rittenhouse went there with good intentions, right? And look at what he ended up with, right? He was put through hell as a result of this. And no one on MSNBC seems to give a damn about Kyle Rittenhouse or anything he's gone through. He did not ask for any of this. He's a good kid who got caught up in bad circumstances. But also think about this, because there's nothing racial about this incident, right? Now, they try to make it a racial incident, even though all three of the people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot were white, right? Everybody is white. There is, there's no people of color here. It's a white man that shot other white men, right? So clearly, race is not involved, but it had racial overtones because the protests, and I don't really want to call them protests, the rioting and the looting was in response to the shooting of Jacob Blake, who was black or is black as he's not dead. But Jacob Blake, a black man, was shot by white policemen. Now, he was shot while resisting arrest. In fact, video footage shows that he was reaching for the knife that he had in his car and he probably would have used it on the officers had they not shot him. And so this was a good shooting, meaning a valid shooting. That's why the police were not charged in this incident because the video footage showed a man actively resisting arrest, a threat to the police. And so he got shot, right? And instead of condemning Jacob Blake for his criminal behavior, and by the way, he was beating a woman, I think it was his ex-wife or a girlfriend, called the police because this guy was assaulting her. So the police came to the aid of a woman, right, doing their jobs. This thug was attacking some woman and then ended up getting shot while he was resisting arrest. And what do they want to do? They want to protest the cops. Instead of this woman beating criminal who ended up getting shot, they're protesting the cops. And so that's what sparked all of the rioting and all the looting. And that's what brought Kyle Rittenhouse, along with other people, to show up and help defend the community. And of course, you know, in the George Floyd era, the police are afraid to show up, right? They don't want to be called racist. So the police aren't there, right? So the citizens are having to do the police's job because the police are too scared to do their jobs because they know what happened to the police in the George Floyd incident. So they don't want any part of that. So the people were left to their own. And so they're exercising their constitutional rights to defend themselves and to defend property. But think about this. What if the people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot, what if they were black? Could you imagine how much worse this would have been if he'd have shot black people? It would have all been race. It would have been this white supremacist murdered these black people because they were black, right? Even though that would have had nothing to do with it. Because again, I'm talking about the identical circumstances. Everything was exactly the same, except the three individuals who got shot just happened to be black. It wouldn't have meant that race played any part because they got shot anyway and they were white. But that would not have stopped the news media from claiming that it was only because they were black that they got shot when they got shot even though they were white because it's their conduct. It was their actions that resulted in their getting shot, not their race. And the same thing would have been true had these guys been black. Had they been black and done exactly what these white guys did, they would have got shot too because race would have had nothing to do with it. But of course, race would have had everything to do with it if they were black because that's how the media would have spun it. And I'm sure that had they been black, I don't even know if the jury would have had the guts to acquit them but assuming they did, I'm sure there would be massive rioting and looting going on tonight in Kenosha. Now, hopefully that doesn't happen anyway. It still might happen. They still may protest, even though 
There is no racial aspect to this at all, other than the fact that it happened on a night that they were supposedly protesting what did happen to a black man, which again, had nothing to do with race. It had to do with what Jacob Blake did. His conduct is what got him shot, not his race. And the policemen didn't shoot him because he was black. They shot him because he was resisting arrest and potentially going to stab them with a knife. That's what they cared about. They didn't care about the color of his skin. They cared about that knife. But another thing that I thought about was what if Kyle Rittenhouse had been black and the people he shot white? How would the media have covered the story then? I mean, I think that had Rittenhouse been black, and the people he shot been white, I don't think he ever would have been charged. I don't think anybody would have been upset. In fact, I think the way the media would have covered the incident, they would have said three white supremacists attacked this young black man. And this young black man defended himself against these white racists and shot them. And they deserve to be shot because they're white racists and they deserve what they get. Personally, I think that's what would have happened had the races been reversed. That is the double standard. Now, this again had nothing to do with race because I'm sure the media was pretty upset that Kyle Rittenhouse shot white guys. Probably when they first heard that he shot people, they were probably hoping they were black because then it would have made it so much worse and it would have proved that there's all these racists. In fact, even Joe Biden, who at the time was not president, it was during the campaign, but he labeled Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist because he was there and he had a gun and he was white. Well, he must have been a white supremacist, except the problem was they couldn't find any evidence of that whatsoever. I mean, they looked through all this kid's social media accounts. They probably talked to everybody he knew. They were dying to find some evidence that he was a secret member of the Ku Klux Klan or something like that. But no, I mean, this kid is a straight arrow. He's a Boy Scout. The only thing he did wrong is he supported Donald Trump to the extent that you think that's wrong. Now, as far as a lot of people on the left are wrong, that's all you proof you need that someone's a racist, right? Because if you support Donald Trump, well, you must be a racist because Donald Trump is a racist. But apart from him being a Trump supporter, that's it. They had nothing. So they couldn't really make this story about race. So all they could do is make it an anti-gun story and try to frame this from the perspective of this gun-toting kid with a hot trigger finger, went off and shot people, innocent people. And if we only had better gun control laws, then maybe he would have left his gun at home and these people would be alive, which is true. They may be alive, but Kyle Rittenhouse may be dead. And the media is trying to spin this as if, oh my God, this is sending a bad message. This is like open season. This is telling all you white supremacists out there, hey, you could just shoot people with impunity, that you could bring your guns and you could just shoot people and nothing's going to happen to you. First of all, a lot happened to Kyle Rittenhouse. An innocent kid gets dragged through the mud. I don't think he got away, even though he wasn't convicted. The fact that he had to go through the emotional hell that he went through, and not just him, but his family. I mean, I think a lot of people will be afraid to do what Kyle Rittenhouse did. They're not gonna wanna bring their guns into these situations to help defend lives and property. And so more people will end up dying because people don't wanna bring their guns, but there'll be good people that end up dying, not bad people. The message that should be sent is don't loot, don't riot, don't attack people that have guns, don't break the law. That is the real message. These were young men, right? One guy was in his early 30s. One guy was in his 20s. They had their whole lives ahead of them. And they did something very stupid and they got themselves shot, right? The lesson should be, don't do these stupid things, right? Tell other young people, hey, these guys lost their lives because of a dumb mistake they made. Don't do it yourself, Right? That's what we should be doing. We should be telling our young people, hey, don't let this happen to you. It's not that Kyle Rittenhouse did something wrong. It's the people he shot that did something wrong. Now, do I think they deserve to be shot? Probably not. I mean, maybe they didn't really intend to kill Rittenhouse, but Rittenhouse didn't know that. He has a right to defend himself. So what they did was foolish. Now, maybe they were going to kill him 
And if they were going to kill him, well, then maybe they did deserve to be shot themselves. But if they weren't going to kill him, if they were just going to scare him, if they were just going to rough him up a bit, maybe hit him a couple of times, if that's all they were going to do, they didn't deserve to die, but they did die because of their own actions, not because of Rittenhouse's. They put Rittenhouse in that situation, and he did the only thing he could to defend himself. And the solution is not to disarm everybody else so that criminals know that their victims are unarmed and they can attack them with impunity. The lesson is to abide by the law and don't attack anybody, armed or unarmed. Don't riot, don't loot. If you don't like something and you want to protest it, then protest it. There's a difference between protesting and rioting, between protesting and looting. You know, the left, they have no problem when they talk about the Capitol Hill. It's always the Capitol Hill riots when all these people stormed Washington, D.C., right, because they thought that Trump won the election and it was stolen for him. They called that a riot, even though nobody was lighting fire to anything. There was no real violence there. I mean, yes, people came into the Capitol, but it seemed like a lot more peaceful than the stuff that was going on in Kenosha or a lot of other areas. Yet the media has a problem calling what happened in Kenosha a riot or looting. There they want to say it was a protest, yet they've got no problem talking about the Capitol Hill riots because they use riots all the time. It's never a protest. It's always a riot. So clearly there is a double standard. One man's protest is another man's riot, right? Riots are in the eye of the beholder, I guess, just like looting. And you behold what your own bias wants you to behold. But the message that should be learned here is that Kyle Rittenhouse protected himself, defended himself by lawfully using a gun, Nothing wrong with that. And these young men lost their lives because they did something stupid. They did something wrong. And it's unfortunate, but the lesson is, hey, if you're a young man, don't do what these guys did because you know what? You might end up getting shot yourself. (laughs) 